The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. There comes a point in the 1930s where the conservative party is actually concerned to attract more men to its ranks because women have really uh, taken over in many ways the organization, the social life uh, and the social kind of energy of the party. That was Julie V. Gottlieb talking about the history of political women. Anson comes home as rich as Croesus to become one of the great men of the mid-18th century. But like all of his crew, he has no hair and no teeth because the scurvy has taken them. And that was Andrew Lambert on A Tale of Naval Adventure. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of September 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Here in Britain, an unprecedented number of political parties are currently being led by women. Among them, Theresa May, who recently became Britain's second female prime minister. This trend is also apparent overseas, notably in the United States, where Hillary Clinton is battling to become the first woman president. In the latest issue of the magazine, historian Julie V. Gottlieb looks back over the past hundred years to chart the development of women in British politics. She also spoke recently to our acting deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Julie, could you start by just taking us through the timescale of when women originally got the vote in the UK? Yeah, so women, um, I mean, obviously the struggle for the vote started in the 19th century and and really started picking up pace at the end of the 19th century uh, with the formation first of the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which were the constitutionalists. And then in 1903, the uh, WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, was formed by the Pankhursts, which was the militant wing. But it wasn't until 1918... Uh, near the end of the war, not the end of the war, but near the end of the war, uh, that the legislation was passed that um, that provided for, for women's suffrage. And this was the representation of the People's Act. Uh, it was passed in March uh, 1918. Um, and as we know, there were still a number of months to run uh, before uh, the armistice. Um, and this was a, a piece of legislation, which in, in many ways was the fulfillment of uh, of what women had been fighting for in, in, in fighting for the vote. But in other ways, it was a disappointment. Of course, it created, uh, it, it's, it provided a, a, an age differential. So, this was universal male suffrage, which was represented by the Act, but only women over the age of 30 um, were given the vote. So men from the age of 21, women at the age of 30. Now, you might want to know why this age differential. And one of the main uh, reasons for that, or really the main reason, was the fear that women would outnumber men at the polls. And that was just too much for many of the parliamentarians uh, and I guess for the male electorate more broadly, um, who had you know resisted uh, women's enfranchisement in the first place. Uh, but 
uh, had changed course gradually in the course of the war because of of what women had contributed and what they'd uh, and the work that they'd done their patriotic service both at the home front and on the uh, battlefront which seemed to make the argument unassailable uh, that women should now come into their own as citizens so was the fact that so many men had been killed in the first world war the reason for that um, age qualification for women yes i mean so there was this real concern that there would be this demographic imbalance. Very soon, the language of the missing generation, the lost generation, uh, took hold. Um, and that was already made clear by the effect of, of the war and of war casualties. Um, so, women did outnumber men, uh, in, in especially in the uh, age group of fighting age. Um, and, you know, this was picked up in the 1920s uh, by a number of, uh, of, of news outlets, especially the Daily Mail, which was really concerned about our surplus women. Um, very soon, started calling them our superfluous women. Um, so that uh, was a continuation of this this concern about this this great you know this important uh, demographic imbalance. So what happened then in 1928? Okay, so in 1918, uh, the suffrage movement really kind of lost its cause, or mostly, um, because as we know, there is this age differential still. So, a much quieter, more muted feminist movement continues in the 1920s in many ways, but also agitating uh, for for the equal franchise. Uh, And this becomes uh, a reality in 1928, uh, when the equal franchise bill is passed. This was also significantly called the flapper's vote. Um, And uh, it was just really, uh, you know, uh, there was some controversy about that, but much less controversy than there had been uh, around the vote and the extension of the franchise, um, uh, uh, you know, 10, 20 years earlier. So what did people mean when they talked about flappers? I mean, we all think we know what it, what it referred to, but what, um, what did they mean at that time? Well, they meant these young women, these women in their, in their 20s, uh, who had either, uh, you know, come of age during the war or soon after it, um, and who really benefited from all that the feminist movement um, had achieved, but didn't really feel particularly grateful in that way. I mean, this was the uh, generation of the the flappers, the, also sometimes called the bright young things. Um, you know, these were carefree. They were the products of the jazz age, of the roaring 20s, um, and, you know, of a time of kind of post-war, I guess, hedonism in many ways. Um, and, you know, again, they represented this the new kind of energy, enthusiasm, and power uh, of women in the post-war period. Again, going back to that demographic imbalance, the kind of the, the role of the single woman took on new meaning. Um, in some ways, it was very empowering. In others, the new single woman, um, the flapper, was a great threat uh, to the gender order, to kind of ideas of the family, um, to what we might call kind of uh, conservative values. Okay, now going back to 1918, um, how soon after that did women start becoming MPs? Yeah, so that's what's interesting about the representation of the People's Act. It's not until actually uh, several months later that the uh, uh, act is passed that allows women to actually uh, stand as candidates uh, for parliament. So you'd think that that this would lead to really a huge, you know, a momentous change. Uh, it does in terms of expectations and aspirations, but in terms of reality, it takes a lot longer uh, for women to really be able to take advantage of this new legislation, which allows them um, to enter parliament as MPs. So in that first election, uh, under 20 women stood uh, as MPs, uh, but not one amongst them, or not one amongst them certainly who had a, a suffrage or suffragette pedigree uh, was elected. Uh, the one that came closest was Christabel Pankhurst, who with her mother uh, had been the leading light in the WSPU, the, the suffragette organization. Um, and she even organized a women's party. Uh, but as surprisingly, um, it, this was a much more right-wing uh, and ultra-conservative uh, formation than you might expect, given the radical roots of the WSPU. Uh, but she, too, in Smethwick, she didn't manage to get elected. And all the other women uh, were similarly unsuccessful, all but one, uh, who was the Sinn Féin candidate, uh, the Countess Markovic. Uh, but because she was uh, standing for Sinn Féin, she didn't take her seat. Um, so it would be only in 1919 at a by-election in Plymouth uh, that the first woman MP was elected and then actually took her seat. And that was uh, Lady Nancy Astor. And she came from a very different uh, background than these feminist figures, these feminist um, uh, pioneers. Uh, she was, of course, of aristocrat. You know, she she 
the reason that she was managed to uh, stand for Plymouth was because her husband had been elevated to the House of Lords. So she really was, uh, you know, and this was the case with many of the early women MPs. They really just stepped into the shoes of their husbands uh, rather than coming from a, a background of, of, of their own kind of feminist endeavour. Now, tell us more about the first generation of female MPs. Um, How were they treated by the male MPs and what were their experiences in the House of Commons? That's a really interesting question. Of course, there were about 36, uh, there were 36 women uh, between the wars who became MPs and they had uh, different experiences because they came from all three parties and and there were even important independent MPs like Eleanor Rathbone, Um, but they also uh, shared certain experiences. And I think coming back to Astor is a good way of, 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 of answering this question. She was the first woman MP. um, And as I said, she didn't, you know, she wasn't in, in any way self-made in politics. Nonetheless, she very happily embraced her role as the first woman MP. Um, and she really felt very strongly that she was in Parliament, not only to represent her constituents in Plymouth, but to represent women and children as a whole, um, to be their voice for women and children in Parliament. Um, and she carried this through uh, in, in a number of ways. And as more women uh, gradually entered the House, she tried to club together with women, regardless of, uh, of party. So, tried to to create nonpartisan women's groups within parliament uh, of, of women uh, parliamentarians to try to get women's issues across in parliament. So uh, a number of, of women uh, grouped together with her in the 1920s. Um, and in the 1930s, a number of women MPs again transcended party lines uh, to work together on issues that were seen as particularly pertinent to women. Um, So, in the 1930s, the big issues were, of course, international relations and international crisis. Uh, And there we see um, Eleanor Rathbone, the independent, Ellen Wilkinson, the very kind of hard left uh, uh, Labour MP, um, and the Duchess of Atoll, very much a, 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 Ethel, sorry, very much a, a, a figure originally from the right of the Conservative Party, actually coming together, these three women, to make regular protests and ask regular questions uh, about um, the government's handling of of, of foreign policy issues, and especially uh, the policy that came to be known as appeasement. Yes. Now, since you've mentioned that, um, there was a fear that women would feminise politics at that time. And this, of course, relates to appeasement. Could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so that that fear, as I say, goes back even further. I think to the to the you know to the immediate aftermath of, of suffrage and, and to women's enfranchisement, um, and it it comes through in in many ways. It comes through in political cartoons. It comes through in in if you look at at the memoirs of of the leading kind of parliamentarians and 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 MPs and. Um, even prime ministers at the time, uh, if you look at their diaries and letters and their attitudes to the women who have entered this, this man's house. Uh, Winston Churchill is a very good example of that. Um, he and Astor, again, had a, a long uh, relationship which was mainly um, hostile. And uh, one of the ways in which he explained his hostility towards Astor, aside from the fact that that he just she just really got on his nerves, uh, was that she had, you know, kind of invaded this man's house, uh, Parliament. So th- this sense of feminization was from the very top, from the elite, and all the way down, this sense that women were flooding uh, the electorate, um, because of course now, we, uh, certainly from 1928, they did represent more than 50% of the electorate, and that they were, again, the, another way that this concern was, was articulated was in the way that women were associated with a peace block in electoral terms, um, and 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 that, that that women would be the most reluctant to support a more bellicose, uh, more active, aggressive foreign policy. So when they got the vote, um, did the political parties feel that they had to change the way they did things in order to attract the support of women? Very much so, yes. Um, and you find all three political parties, all three mainstream political parties, uh, going out of their way to reorganize, uh, to reformulate, uh, to restructure in order to do just this, to, on the one hand, uh, to make sure that they can capture the so-called woman's vote, um, and on the other hand, to really mobilize women at the level of each uh, of each of the political parties, as party workers, as canvassers, um, as the public face of the party. Um, so, each each 
party does so in slightly different ways with remarkably the similar results uh, that, you know, this attempt to, to mobilize women to make each party much more appealing uh, to women at the grassroots, but also at election time. So, if you'd like, I could give you uh, an example of the Conservative Party and how they do this. Um, so, in 1918, uh, they they reorganized. There's a new constitution. They established the Women's Unionist uh, Organization, which uh, later is renamed the Women's Conservative uh, uh, Associations. Um, and what, what's really remarkable, and one of the reasons we can understand uh, the Conservative Party's hegemony uh, in the 1920s and 30s, is because of how successful they are at mobilizing uh, women. Uh, again, both as party workers and um, as voters, as conservative as Tory voters. Um, so, there comes a point in the 1930s where the Conservative Party is actually concerned to attract more men to its ranks, because women have really uh, taken over, in many ways, the organization um, the, the kind of the, the social life uh, and the social kind of energy uh, uh, of the party, which is, of course, fundamental to a party that considers itself the, the party of natural rule. So women's involvement in the political parties didn't sort of just spring into life in 1918, did it? Because they were involved uh, sort of in the 1980s, that sort of period. The 1880s, yes. Sorry, 1880s. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and in the 1980s as well. Um, but yes, uh, that, that's, that's exactly right. So this, th th there is this kind of slightly ironic situation where women are... Um, mobilized by the political parties before they're actually citizens, before they have the franchise. Um, and that's the case um, with the Conservative Party, which establishes the Primrose League in 1883, uh, the Women's Liberal Federation, I think it's 1886, uh, and then the Labour Party, and, uh, you know, as it, when it becomes the Labour Party uh, in 1906, also sets up its own uh, Women's Labour Federation. Um, so, every party is aware of the power and the potential of women for, for political work, whether they have the vote or not. Um, so, it, it really, in, in that sense, as you're suggesting, there's a continuation. Um, it's not as sudden a restructuring as, as, as one might think. But nonetheless, in 1918, uh, with the advent of mass democracy, thanks to the representation of the People's Act and universal male suffrage, partial women's suffrage, the urgency um, to respond to, to this new political situation uh, is made clear. And each party, I think, rather successfully reorganises accordingly. Now, you mentioned earlier that in the 1930s, um, women were, were not afraid to get involved in uh, international affairs. Um, and they didn't, as some uh, uh, male MPs might have suspected, just concern themselves with domestic issues. But were there particular issues that female MPs were more interested in getting on the agenda, um, you know, issues that we might today call women's issues? Yes, there were. And, and you know, in that sense, women were did live up to the um, expectation that they would possibly focus on those domestic issues, uh, bread and butter issues, uh, you know, legislation about women's work, about child welfare, uh, about maternal mortality and everything to do with women's health. Um, one of the uh, successful uh, women MPs whose career spanned uh, several decades but started in the late 1930s was was Dr. Edith Summerskill, the Labour MP who, who um, won her seat in 1938. Um, and she kind of combined um, many of these um, qualities. She was a doctor. She had special concern for women's and, and children's welfare. But she also um, you know, Ken, she's coming uh, to Parliament in the late 1930s, and as a, a, you know, as a representative for Labour, she also had a, a deep concern with foreign affairs uh, and and humanitarian concerns uh, in the sphere of Spain, um, Germany, Italy, um, and of course during the war itself. So there was a way in which women combined their their role as kind of social mothers, as humanitarians, uh, with the the new concerns uh, thrown up by the crises in international affairs. Now you mentioned there the role as social mothers. Um, now whether or not a female MP actually has her own children is still an issue today in a way that it's not for men. Did that become apparent right from the start? 
Yes, and I mean, Summerskill uh, actually was a mother. She had two children of her own, uh, so she doesn't fit that uh, stereotype. Uh, but yes, there were many, many of these early women MPs uh, were not mothers themselves in a biological sense, uh, and this was counted against them uh, in many ways. But uh, at the same time, there was no no allowances were made for women who were mothers and who had the you know had that juggling act to play that any uh, you know work working woman uh, would understand. Um, so it's it's not at all surprising that a lot of these uh, first women MPs uh, were childless themselves. Uh, some of them were childless um, by design and others not by design. Um, so the Duchess of Athol, um, she was married, uh, but then I think they couldn't have children. So otherwise she probably would have been a mother, but then others were, uh, were, were single and had chosen to be single, like Eleanor Rathbone, um, Ellen Wilkinson, Irene Ward, uh, Florence Horsburgh. So there were, um, you know, a lot were single and and some uh, and many of them childless as well. So they picked up on on what what they did or what they were seen to be doing was to realize their maternal instincts, their nurturing um, in their political work, uh, in in adopting this kind of role uh, and fulfilling this role of social mother. Um, so, yeah, so that links to something else and, and what we haven't spoken about yet um, is the intrinsic connection drawn between uh, women's biological roles, uh, their their role as as wives and mothers, as nurturers, with their penchant and their 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 concern with peace politics and with pacifism. Um, so that that was also seen as as very much linked, um, and that had concrete organizational features as well. Uh, and women had. Um, taken a leading role in 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 the in the politics of peace already starting in 1915 during the war itself uh, where they organized a, a number of, of feminist internationalists organized a, a big meeting at the Hague um, uh, which led to the uh, formation of the women's International League for peace and freedom um, and there were a number of other uh, feminist pacifist initiatives uh, which were a way of realizing uh, this this intrinsic pacifism uh, that women were seen to, to represent. Now, I'd like to turn to um, the present situation. Um, I mean, for a few weeks after the referendum on whether Britain should leave or remain in the EU, it seemed that women were rising to leadership positions all over the place, in the UK, in Europe, um, in the USA as well. Um, we had Angela Eagle challenging Jeremy Corbyn uh, for the Labour Party leadership, and Theresa May and Andrea Levson fight for the Conservative Party leadership. Uh, while in Scotland, of course, there's Nicola Sturgeon um, and uh, Leanne Wood leads Plaid Cymru. Um, what, what's going on here? Is this just coincidence or, or is it sort of women finally coming of age in, in the political system? It's a fascinating question, isn't it? Um, and, you know, I, I was monitoring these things and it really struck me. Uh, and together with uh, my colleague, uh, Clarisse Beltesen, we we picked up on this and wanted to make sense of it immediately. Um, and it was interesting how few people picked up on it or how long it took people to realize that, wow, we were about to enter this world of women. Um, and of course, you know, we, we have many other ma major milestones uh, on the horizon in the United States right now uh, as well. And then, and, and, you know, throughout Europe, um, there are many women vying for or already in leadership positions. Um, but before we get too excited about it, I mean, we have to think also about who these women are and which political parties they represent. Um, and also to, to think very carefully about the relationship between uh, women's political activity and their political ambitions and the politics of feminism. Sometimes there's a, quite a connection between the two uh, and one is driven by the other. And at other times, there's very little connection between the two. There's a real gulf between the progressive agenda of feminism and the political agendas that these women represent uh, as leadership figures. So I think it's really important before we get too excited uh, about um, the, this kind of realization of the feminization of politics to, to think carefully about what kind of politics uh, these women leaders uh, represent. That was Julie V. Gottlieb of the University of Sheffield. Her article on political women appears in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Victorian slums, King Canute, 19th century Europe and Cold War summits. You can get hold of our October issue in all good news agents in the UK 
and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. For this week's second interview, I spoke to Andrew Lambert, Professor of Naval History at King's College London. Andrew is the author of a new book entitled Crusoe's Island, a rich and curious history of pirates, castaways and madness. The book explores the fascinating history of Robinson Crusoe Island and explains its complex connection to the classic 18th century novel. I began by asking Andrew to explain where exactly the island is located. Robinson Crusoe Island is located roughly 300 miles due west of the Chilean city of Valparaiso in the South Pacific. It sits off the shipping lanes in the middle of a vast empty space and it occupies a different space in the way the English see the world. It it occupies a much more important place. For the Chileans, it's a rather embarrassing little place, which is a long way away and slightly expensive to run. For the English, it's a place of dreams and mythologies and, and a sense of self, which is unusual. When was this island first actually discovered? Quite prosaically, its its original name is Juan Fernandez, and it was discovered in 1578 by a Spanish sea captain called Juan Fernandez, who, finding it very difficult to sail south down the west coast of South America, headed out into the ocean to try and pick up the wind, and he found a much easier sailing route. So if you're sailing from Central America to South America down the west coast, you head out around 300 miles into the ocean and then head south where you pick up better winds uh, and better currents. So he found the island then. Uh, The Spanish paid almost no attention to it because they had plenty of land and weren't overly troubled by islands. And indeed, the Spanish are not a very insular kind of people. They, They prefer continents. So for them, it was just a place which they didn't bother to put on the map in case those dreadful English uh, and the even more terrible Dutch found it and used it as a base to raid their trade. And of course, eventually the Dutch did find it and they used it as a base to raid the Spanish South American provinces. And then they published what they'd found. And that's how the English found it in a Dutch book. OK, so the island's modern name comes from the fact that Alexander Selkirk who was the inspiration for Robinson Crusoe, actually was marooned on the island. How much do we actually know about Selkirk's time on the island? In 1967, the government of Chile renamed the island, which was always called Mazatiera. It's one of a group of islands. It's the nearest to the coast, as you might gather from its name. Uh, Robinson Crusoe, in order to attract more tourists... The problem with that is Crusoe clearly never existed. And the man who did live on the island, quite famously, the Scots seafarer Alexander Selkirk, was awarded another island in the group, which he certainly never saw. So layers of mythology and confusion are being constantly painted over the original story. Selkirk himself is often credited as the original Crusoe, but of course he isn't. Uh, Defoe is far too skilled a writer to simply pillage one seafarer's tale and make a book out of it. Robinson Crusoe is a much more complex analogue of many things, and almost the only thing that he isn't is Scottish. He's actually an Anglo-German hybrid, and he's an analogue for King George I. 
Um, on page one, it says, my proper name is Kreuznacker, and my father came from Bremen. So Crusoe is, in fact, an Anglo-German, and the island on which he exists in Defoe's book is, in fact, off the mouth of the river Orinoco in the Caribbean. So Defoe didn't set the story on Juan Fernandez, even though he knew where it was and wrote about it quite a lot. He set it on another island in another ocean, and he certainly didn't pillage Selkirk's story. The, the, the link between Selkirk and Crusoe was made after the event by people who remembered this particularly spectacular story of a Scotsman who marooned himself willingly on the island and remained there for four years, uh, going through all kinds of mental and physical privations and eventually coming back into the world of the living uh, with some fabulous stories to tell. So Crusoe has been accused of plagiarism, but he didn't plagiarize that story. He used many survivor and castaway stories to create what is, of course, the ultimate castaway story. So the connection then between Selkirk and Robinson Crusoe, it may be quite actually quite thin, and Daniel Defoe wasn't specifically basing it the book on Selkirk then. No, um, Defoe was far too clever a man to simply go for one source. Um, we have a catalogue of his library. This man has probably the largest library in private hands in England in the time when he's writing Defoe. And it's a library stuffed full of travel, of exploration, of buccaneer narratives, of castaway stories. From his shelves, he can pull down almost all the texts that refer to this region, these islands, the various kinds of narrative. Um, Buccaneer and, and survivor stories were the the hit literature of the age. They were very popular and very widely consumed. And what Defoe is doing is catching them all up and melding something richer and far stranger out of them, in which this exemplary Englishman is, in fact, reading a lesson to King George I about what it means to be English. You live on an island, you improve it, you're tolerant to people of many faiths, uh, but you won't put up with cannibalism, uh, and you leave the island far richer and more prosperous than you found it. This is precisely what men like Defoe wanted George I to be, an improving English king. Uh, And they were reading him a lesson in English kingship and and Englishness, uh, which they felt very necessary for a German-speaking Hanoverian. Did the book have the impact that um, Daniel Defoe had hoped for? Did people read it and then follow his advice? Of course, like any cultural production, once you put it out there, people read it in the way that they wish to read it. Most readers seem to have thought it was simply a bowdlerized version of a real story. Uh, which it isn't. Uh, And Selkirk was the obvious person to be credited with this. Selkirk, by this stage, himself was dead, uh, so he couldn't be interviewed uh, on the subject. And Defoe was far busier in the early 1720s after Defoe's book comes out. He's actually far busier writing about the economic prospects of the British Empire and overseas trade, particularly heading into the South Pacific. And for him, the island we know as Robinson Crusoe Island was an obvious base for English traders trading into Spanish South America. The island for him isn't a place where Crusoe lived. It's a place where future English traders will make their fortune. So it's it's in much of his writing in the 1720s, but not as the home of Robinson Crusoe. But obviously Robinson Crusoe was a, a huge success. What what did the popularity of the book actually mean for the island itself? The book was a runaway success. And like any modern blockbuster, um, there was a sequel and, and a sequel after that. The second and third books are, are not of any great interest. Defoe was clearly mining a resource rather than producing anything very original. But we've all seen Hollywood sequels and we know how that works. Um, the success of the book put the whole idea of insularity at the heart and center of English identity. Uh, and I'm using that that description very specifically. It, it is very much an English book. It doesn't resonate in the same way in, in Ireland or Scotland. And I think that's quite conscious. Defoe is very much an Englishman writing around the age of the Act of Union. And the thing that troubles him is, is Englishness. 
So he makes the English insula, and Crusoe ultimately becomes the exemplary Englishman. In the 17th century, the English were quite noisy, rather boisterous, uh, not particularly uh, aware of themselves. In the 18th century, the the Crusoe-esque Englishman, the reserved, the taciturn, uh, the dignified, uh, becomes more of a more of a norm, and we can see Defoe in many ways creating a model of Englishness, which becomes adopted in the centuries that follow. So it's a book that's been in print down to the age when everything was in print forever, uh, ever since it was published. So it has a huge take-up, and it helps to shape the mental worlds not just of the English, but of the British, of the Americans, of the Europeans. Hugely popular in Germany, um, not just because it says that he was half German on page one, but the Germans have a great taste for survivor castaway stories. If you live in Central Europe, it's great to think about the sea. You're never going to be cast away, but it has a certain frisson, I expect. So we end up with a German genre called the Robinsonad, where essentially endless versions of, of Crusoe-esque stories get retold. It has an enormous impact on the literature and culture of the wider world. And what it means is when people go back to the island any time after 1719, because of this Selkirk connection and because of the assumption that the two stories are linked, they immediately start to look for Robinson Crusoe. And for centuries, people have gone to this island looking for Crusoe, when what they actually mean is Selkirk. They confuse Selkirk and Crusoe. Um, the best story is that there is a, a Selkirk's cave on the island that everybody thinks is connected in some way with Selkirk. Selkirk never had a cave. Uh, Crusoe had a cave, but Crusoe A didn't exist and B was never on the island. So Selkirk has been given a cave which he never lived in because he's become so fused with Crusoe that people have forgotten the real story um, and the fictional character. Now, I believe that the island, as, as well as Selkirk, has had a number of other really unusual visitors over the years. Could you tell us about a few of those? Yes, um, because of its amazing strategic position, Juan Fernandez Island has become the epicenter of a of, a, of an era of in the, the history of the sailing ship, and of British and other European countries' relationships with Spanish America. Essentially, if you sail down through the South Atlantic, round Cape Horn, and sail up the west coast of South America, you by that stage will need to make landfall because scurvy will have set in and your crew will be in a bad condition. The only place you can land safely without coming into contact with the Spanish army is an offshore island, and Juan Fernandez is the perfect island because it's full of food, uh, both vegetable, um, fish, and and animal, and it has a good supply of fresh water too. So your six scorbutic men recover very quickly there. It is in many ways the alternative on the other side of South America to the Falkland Islands. It has the same kind of strategic position commanding the sea passage. So over the years, a whole series of buccaneers turn up there. William Dampier is perhaps the best known of them. He visits on at least four occasions. And he writes about the island. And it's his story of two men meeting on the beach that becomes the meeting of Man Friday and his father in Defoe's book. So Defoe is borrowing not just from Selkirk, he's borrowing from Dampier, he's borrowing from other buccaneers. Then in the 1740s, we have the great circumnavigation of Lord Anson when this appalling voyage ends up with a, a scorbutic catastrophe. Two-thirds of the men die of scurvy and related diseases. They arrive at this island, they recruit their health and strength, they repair their ships, and they sail off to glory. They capture the prize of all the oceans, the Manila Galleon. And Anson comes home as rich as Croesus to become one of the great men of the mid-18th century. But like all of his crew, he has no hair and no teeth because the scurvy has taken them. And he will become an ultimate English hero, probably the greatest admiral before Nelson, and who reshaped the Royal Navy and decided the outcome of the Seven Years' War. So Anson's voyage, Robinson Crusoe, Dampier, Selkirk, these build up. And then when the English keep coming back, they bring all of these texts with them, and they read 
those texts back into the landscape. They continually reapply versions of this story. And by the mid-19th century, the story becomes slightly odd because now English ships are arriving sailing from Chile and they're not suffering from scurvy. They're not deranged. Their teeth aren't falling out. Their minds aren't going. And instead of paradise, they're seeing a pretty prosaic little island in the middle of nowhere. And they're slightly bemused by the things that are written about it. Because Anson's men are quite clearly in a condition that in in the modern world, we would associate with people taking um, hallucinogenic narcotics, particularly LSD. Uh, they're seeing hyperbolic visions, um, either of, of pain or pleasure. So rather stiff 19th century Victorians simply can't understand what Anson's men have seen because it doesn't exist. Everything is, is different, but it just keeps going. Um, the famous oceanographic voyage of HMS Challenger in the 1880s, they sailed to this island and all of the men on board are excited to be there. Most of the scientists are Scotsmen and so they're looking for Selkirk and they impose Selkirk on the landscape. The Americans own it too. During the gold rush in San Francisco in 1849, very large numbers of Americans stopped at this island on their way north, and all of them set off to find Crusoe. But they were looking for Selkirk, or they were looking for Selkirk, but they meant Crusoe. And they too had a, a bizarre relationship with reality. Uh, Herman Melville passes by, and he too writes about the island. So it it, it gets into the grain of, of an Anglophone culture of the South Pacific. It becomes something which shapes uh, and identifies a particular worldview. And all of these stories seem strange until... March 1915, when the last of Admiral von Spee's cruisers, the rest were sunk in the Falkland Islands, is sunk in the harbour by two British warships. So the thing becomes part of another story. And then in the Second World War, the Chileans were so worried somebody else would fight a battle there, they sent some heavy artillery to defend the island. Uh, and it's still there, sitting, looking rather forlorn in the middle of a children's playground. And I understand that you, you yourself have visited the island for your research. And how did the place itself compare to all the literary and artistic depictions? The book started with a with an expedition to the island, uh, working with a, a, a German film crew. And they were fascinated by this half German Crusoe story. But they were also fascinated with the, the various iterations of the English story and some of the mythology. Uh, they were very anxious to see if Lord Anson had really left any treasure there. And the answer is no, he had no treasure when he arrived. He just buried a lot of men there. So we spent a month living on the island, and it's nothing like all of the literary versions that you read, because it's a perfectly prosaic little temperate island in the middle of a pretty cold sea. The Humboldt Channel runs north past it. Uh, it's almost entirely vertical. It's part of the rim of an extinct volcano. And almost everywhere you go, it involves a large amount of climbing, uh, not much forward progress. It's around 500 people live there, a population which settled little more than 100 years ago. And in all honesty, almost nothing happens there, and it happens very slowly. Uh, it is the ultimate retreat from this world. The island lives on the export of one product, which is a very large saltwater crayfish, uh, most of which end their days uh, in Santiago in the surf and turf restaurants. And it's occasionally visited by epic tsunami. Um, when we arrived, it was six months after the last major earthquake in Chile. And whenever there's an earthquake in Chile, a tsunami comes into the bay and hits the village of San Juan Bautista because it's precisely where the tsunami makes landfall. It's the only spot on the island where you could put the village. So a combination of plate tectonics and human geography mean that the island is in the wrong place. And sadly, this time, the tsunami came without warning in the middle of the night and, and several people lost their lives. So it's an island which knows tragedy and it knows isolation. And it also knows some of the problems that small island communities have around the world. So it, it's, a, it's a place of, of great relaxation 
and a great opportunity to think about the meaning of stories and the way that we create culture and identity. It's not a place that many people will go without having a good reason. Uh, my reason was to take part in the documentary. And I've, I've found that to be a really rewarding way of opening up historical questions. Because you can spend a month on a on an island, in a location, with a group of people whose only purpose in being there is to understand what's going on. Uh, it's like living in a 24-hour-a-day seminar for a month. It's pretty intensive. And we ended up doing some archaeology. We spent a lot of time talking to the local people about their sense of, of self and exploring the, the very different ways in which this island works in different kinds of cultures. And I suppose my conclusion was that only the English see the world as a collection of small islands, which aren't actually theirs, uh, spread around on, on the great blue surface of the sea. The Spanish and the Chileans have very continental views, and the islands are inconvenient, and they're distant, and they're not hugely important. They exist for the English in a very different way. And ultimately, one of the debates we were having was about identity. I developed the idea that, that Crusoe was a, a very English story, and the purpose of the story was to anglicize a German king, but it also helped to separate the English out from other constituents of the United Kingdom who, who didn't read the story in the same way. So, if you go back to 1588, it's the foundation myth of the English state, but it's not the foundation myth of the British state because the Scots and the Irish are not involved, or if they are, they're involved in very different ways. And, and Crusoe has a very similar effect. It's just post-Union, but it remains defiantly English and attempts to make it British by including Selkirk in the story um, somewhat missed the point. This leads into discussions of what it is that is uniting or perhaps disuniting the kingdom. Uh, Defoe is seeing it very much as, as unifying, but we might see this different perception of the world, um, an oceanic rather than a continental perception, as something defiantly English and something which does separate the English from other Europeans. And you mentioned this idea of the English or British having an obsession with islands. Do you think that comes mainly from the fact that Britain itself is an island? The short answer to that is yes, but the longer answer is, which I un unpack some of that in the book, when the English realised around 1500 that Europe was becoming a continent of very large and powerful nation states, France and Spain already unified by then, uh, with an overarching philosophy dominated by the Roman Church uh, and a Holy Roman Empire, which had power not just in Austria, but also in, in the Low Countries, Flanders, and modern Belgium and Holland. Intelligent Englishmen began to see that the country which had once tried to conquer France was now in very grave danger of being conquered and subsumed into somebody else's country. Uh, Thomas More's Utopia, which everybody reads as if it's a political treatise on idealism, is in fact a very present-minded declaration that we need to exclude ourselves from Europe to avoid the danger of being overwhelmed by the Europeans, and that this will be a conscious choice. Uh, the utopians, if you read, have dug a 20-mile-wide ditch to cut themselves off from the continent, a ditch that sounds remarkably like the English Channel. And essentially, Moore is saying we can look after our own affairs behind that defense. When Shakespeare, at the end of the century, writes about these things, um, it's post-armada, but it's, it's very much in the same vein. Insularity and identity are so tightly wound that when the English go out in the world, the places in the world they love are islands. So if you look at the great landmarks of, of English overseas activity, there's an awful lot of insularity going on. Not the insularity of not wishing to go anywhere, but the insularity of, of an island-loving approach. The English were never big enough and strong enough numerically to conquer continents, but they could manage islands. And from those islands, they could control trade and they could use that control of trade as a strategic tool. Uh, that was how the English won their great wars. They used the sea to defeat the land. They couldn't defeat the enemy on land. They could defeat him from the sea. And the island is the key. You need a base from which to apply your power. That was Professor Andrew Lambert. Crusoe's Island, a rich and curious history of pirates, castaways and madness, has just been published by Faber.
And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. Archaeologists have uncovered what they believe to be the remains of a large Anglo-Saxon royal hall, or palace, just four miles from the Sutton Hoo burial site. Aerial photography and geophysical surveys were used to uncover the hall's remains, which measure around 23 metres by 9 metres, in Rendlesham, Suffolk. They stand on part of a larger 120-acre site, where around a 1,000 Anglo-Saxon artefacts have been found, including coins, beads, metalwork and fragments of jewellery. Project coordinator Faye Minter told the BBC, We're convinced we found a royal settlement of a very high status. We hope there will be more to come. Experts have suggested that the site may be the East Anglian King's Village, referred to by the 8th century scholar the Venerable Bede. It's also believed that the Royal Hall may have been linked to the nearby Sutton Hoo site, a treasure-laden Anglo-Saxon burial ship discovered in 1939. In other news, English Heritage is launching a scheme to commemorate more public figures from ethnic minorities on London's blue plaques. Only 33 of more than 900 plaques currently honour black and Asian figures. In order to address this, English Heritage has established a panel to nominate important figures from underrepresented groups for consideration. Anna Evis, the organisation's curatorial director, said, Since the Blue Plaque Scheme was established in 1866, our idea of which figures from the past are significant has changed. We want the plaques to celebrate the contributions of those groups which traditionally have been underrepresented in history, including women and the working-class black and Asian communities. The launch of the scheme has been marked by the unveiling of a plaque dedicated to Laurie Cunningham, the first black footballer to play competitive international matches for England. Other ethnic minority figures already commemorated by blue plaques include Jimi Hendrix, Mahatma Gandhi and the Crimean War nurse Mary Seacole. Augustus Casely Hayford from the English Heritage Panel told The Telegraph, London has always been an ethnic melting pot. We want to celebrate that rich, complex and sometimes difficult history through the lives of those that truly made it. Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and then York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Dan and Peter Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many more. Talks are now selling out, so please do check out the website historyweekend.com to book your tickets while they're still available. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be exploring the Battle of Flodden and speaking to Tony Robinson about his experiences on Blackadder and Time Team. It's an episode I'm sure you won't want to miss. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.